Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So we've got quite a few stories coming at you today. First, we're going to do an update on last week's podcast about Weaver. I want to talk about the CDC's advisory panel and childhood vaccine schedule. Then we're going to talk about the South Carolina pro-life bill that... uh, All of that that happened this week, I'll update you on that situation. Then we're going to talk about what's been going on at Boston University and some statements that they made, what they're actually denying and what they are not denying. And then we'll wrap up today's conversation, bringing everybody up to speed on what's going on in the United States regarding the Second Amendment. So first things first, just a few hours After recording last week's podcast, Ellen Weaver announced she has completed the work necessary for her to gain a master's degree. Good for her. That's phenomenal. At least now she will have that in her corner on Election Day. I don't think, in my personal opinion, I don't think it's going to help her gain any voters. It's like almost any other job. Folks want to see the degree and three hours, three years of work experience. Uh, Achieving it so quickly uh, on such a short turnaround, I don't think it really instills confidence in those who were waffling or those who that was going to be a big, big deal. Essentially, folks who were going to vote for Weaver, even if she didn't have the degree on Election Day and were counting on her getting it before January when she actually went into office, those folks obviously are still going to do so. And those who weren't going to vote for her because she didn't have the degree on Election Day... I don't think that they're going to be reassured by the quick achievement of it. I think that that's just going to be something that... The thing it does affect, though, and I talked about this last week, is enthusiasm. And we all know that it's a, election day is all about enthusiasm. And so this is one of the things that does help put some enthusiasm behind Weaver. Although, you know, the Democrats and everybody, they're already raising a lot of questions about how she got it so quickly. And that she got it from Bob Jones University, where she had a lot of connections and blah, 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 blah. Uh, It doesn't matter, though. I I think she's been kind of impenetrable on all of that. So good for her. I'm glad she got it because it does help. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I do, and I didn't say this last week, but, you know, and and I I really meant to, when it comes to these kinds of things, sure, I don't think Weaver is the best candidate. I don't. Point blank, I do not. Obviously, if you listen to my podcast last week, uh, I, I thought there were better candidates in the primaries that could have been more compelling to parents and teachers other than Weaver. But the reality is, is when it comes to voting for somebody, uh, I'm going to pick the person who's going to drive us over the cliff the slowest. Yeah, they might be driving that way at 95 miles per hour, but they're not the other party that's driving at 200 miles per hour. I'm going to try to buy myself some time. And Weaver, you can buy yourself some time, and she's obviously not going to be as terrible as Ellis would be. And again, what I said last week, it's just a matter of Ellis is really, really terrible. Um, But anyway, I'm glad that she got that done. I'm glad they made the announcement and that people can go into the voting booth and vote for Weaver on Election Day, knowing that she is legally qualified per South Carolina standards. So all of that to say, I doubt it will change much for Weaver on actual Election Day other than it you know, helps people be a little bit more enthusiastic about turning out to vote for her. And I'm glad for that because that is important. Uh, another brief news report. You've probably already heard that the CDC's advisory panel 
voted to add COVID shots to the childhood and adult recommended schedules. So here's the thing. The schedule isn't official until it's published in February. So it's not just going to roll out tomorrow and, you know, be added in. It won't, it has to be, it won't be official until this, it's published in February. And as, you know, Stand for Health Freedom, I don't know if you follow them, they're on Instagram. They're a pretty good resource for all of these things. COVID shots for school will likely face uh, legal challenges. And already various politicians across the country have already spoken out saying that they will not be forcing COVID shots in their states. And of course, that's Carrie Lake, who's running in Arizona. And that's if she wins. Uh, DeSantis in Florida, of course, Dan Cox and others, you know, representatives and senators, a few have already spoken out and said, hey, we're not rolling this out in our states. I have not seen or heard anybody from South Carolina that's on the federal level speaking about this um, or McMaster, but it's kind of it happened on the 19th of this week. So, you know, maybe we have yet to hear from them about this. But it probably will face legal challenges uh, for a lot. There's going to be a lot of folks that resist this, especially as you continue. I mean, every I didn't count, but I saw at least three young people make the news this week who dropped dead. Totally healthy. A lot of athletes. And I think all three of them actually were athletes and just dropping dead. And of course, they're, a lot of them are they're dropping dead on television because it's televised events and so folks are seeing it and it is so in your face and I so this is just bizarro that they would think that they could get away with this and that people aren't gonna raise much of a resistance people are just we'll see how far it goes so in the direct path Moving back to, let's talk locally about South Carolina. This was a huge case here, Bill, here in South Carolina. That So the, the most direct path to ending 98% of abortions in South Carolina was squandered this week. The motion to recede from the Senate amendments and let H5399 go straight to the governor's desk failed by a vote of 26 to 17. So... The House had written H5399, and it was a really phenomenal bill, sent it to the Senate. The Senate added on a bunch of amendments that really trashed the whole bill. It was pointless to pass. All of those who are staunchly pro-life that were in the Senate, they recognized that fact. And so there was a motion to recede from the Senate amendment. So basically, send a clean H5399 straight to the governor's desk. They they would recede from the amendments that the Senate had added and let H5399 go through. But that failed, like I said, by a vote of 26 to 17. So there are 13 senators that either did not vote at all or voted nay to ending 98% of abortions in South Carolina. Okay, only 17 out of 30 Republicans voted in favor of ending 98% of abortions in South Carolina. And I'm saying that repeatedly, 98% of abortions in South Carolina. So the 13 senator, this is 13 Republicans, 13 Republican senators. And that's why I said, look, we expect the Democrats to vote how they're going to vote. But this is, we needed these Republicans and 13 out of them, out of 30 Republicans. Republicans in the Senate said no. And that was, and I'm going to, I'll list off their names. This was uh, Bennett, Campson, Cromer, Davis, Gustafson, Hembree, Johnson, Macy's, Sandy Sin, Sheely, and Young. 
not voting. Uh, Stephen Goldfitch was absent, and Senator Luke, Luke Rankin, he was there, but he did not vote. Unsurprising, in my personal opinion. So Richard, Richard Cash detailed the following process that I'm going to give you on his social media, kind of laid out for people what is going to happen now that the motion to recede has failed. So the Senate voted to insist on its amendments. Essentially, that's what happened. So when they weren't able to recede, the Senate was saying, nope, we insist on the amendments that we put in there, which, of course, like I said, it basically makes the bill useless. But it sends the bill to a conference committee now. And this vote, it was necessary to keep the bill alive. But keeping the bill alive at this point is no great victory, of course, when compared with ending 98% of abortions. But... A conference committee is made up of three members from the House and three from the Senate. And Richard Cash is on that committee, and he doesn't know yet when they'll meet. Um, But if this committee can produce a compromise version of the bill, it must then go back to both the House and Senate to be voted on again. The conference committee must finish its work, and both chambers will have to pass a compromise version no later than November 13th. If that does not happen then they will have to start all over again in January. Meanwhile, over 100 unborn babies are being killed by abortion in South Carolina each and every week. All of this to say, it's never been more clear that the majority of Republicans in the South Carolina Senate are not actually Republicans. Well, 17 voted to recede, so barely a majority, barely a majority. But we now have names on paper of those who are not standing for life and, and should not call themselves Republicans. All right, let's talk about Boston. So you may or may not have heard that researchers at Boston University combined the Omicron spike protein with the original COVID virus to create a new hybrid strain. (laughs) I can't even talk about it. Like, it's so unreal. When test, let me get back to the story, though. Uh, When tested, the new virus killed 80% of lab mice. This is all reported by the Daily Mail on Monday of this past week. The news outlet cited a pre-print research paper from the school that has not been peer-reviewed. Since then... Boston University has fired back, calling the article, quote, false and inaccurate. But, and that's that's the headline I keep seeing is that Boston University has called it false and inaccurate, blah, blah, blah. And it makes people think that they're saying the entire article from the Daily Mail and all of their accusations in it are false and inaccurate. But what they are calling, quote, false and inaccurate, wasn't the claim that they were conducting the experiments. A Boston University spokesperson told the news organization that the purpose of the research was to, quote, provide a public benefit by leading to do better targeted therapeutic interventions to help fight against future pandemics. So right there, they're admitting to the research as unwise as it may be. So he's saying clear as day, hey, yeah, we knew, we're not denying that this research was happening. 
So what was the university denying, though? Because obviously that's a that's a direct quote that they claim that they're saying. So the Daily Mail alleged in their article that Boston University conducted gain of function research. If you remember, in 2017, the National Institutes of Health began to use government funds to conduct gain-of-function research. From 2014 to 2017, the practice was halted, supposedly, because of concerns that the dangerous research could inadvertently cause a pandemic. No, you think? That's just insane. Dr. Richard Ebert, a chemist at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, told the Daily Mail that the experiments conducted in Boston are, quote, a clear example of -of gain-of-function research, end quote. So again, I bring all this up because Boston University's denial, calling the article false and inaccurate, that's been bandied about and led many people to believe they're denying the experiments outright, but that's not the case. Their denial has to do with the gain-of-function research, and they are denying that the strain killed 80% of lab mice. Boston University claimed that the mice used in the study were highly susceptible, their words, quote, highly susceptible, end quote, and argued that it was the original strain of the virus that caused the mice to perish, not the hybrid variant. Meanwhile, (laughs) the university stated the opposite, saying, quote, in mice, while Omicron causes mild, non-fatal infection, the Omicron S-carrying virus inflicts severe disease with a mortality rate of 80%. So the university's coming out and saying, no, 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 while the research article that was published about all of this is saying exactly the opposite. So they got to get all of their, whatever they're going to say, whatever claim they're going to make, we all, it, they, they got to figure it out so that everybody's communicating the same messaging because they're not communicating the same messaging. And I'm... I highly doubt that what the university officials and those who are making public statements, I highly doubt that what they're saying is actually true. Uh, they probably were doing gain-of-function research, probably did kill 80% of the lab mice. And it's, you know, again and again and again, you just come back to this question, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And this is one of those things. Look, if it can get out of a lab in Wuhan, China... <laughs> is going to get out of Boston University's lab. I mean, and that was one thing that somebody said in in the article, you know, there needs to be more oversight. Oversight, yes, oversight. That's that's surely what we need. We just need to be asking the question, is this something we should be doing? Not can we, but should we? And if we're going to do it, then there's for sure needs to be way better security about this thing than just being at Boston freaking University. That's insane. Hey, this is Bob, the producer of this podcast. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know you can always get your questions into us. Ask us anything. Feel free to email me at bob at bobsloan.com. B-O-B at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E dot com. Or you can always find that information and more in the show notes. Now back to Hannah. All 
right. So I don't think I talked about this when it happened in June, but I want to bring it up, uh, bring us all up to date and up to speed on where the Second Amendment stands in the courts. And I have to start with the ruling from the Supreme Court in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. And we'll just be calling it Bruin. So Bob Adelman wrote an article about this uh, titled Second Amendment Being Restored to Its Rightful Place Thanks to Bruin Decision. And he said this, the ruling in Bruin was twofold. One, that New York State's that New York State's law requiring a citizen to show proper cause before being granted the privilege of carrying a concealed weapon was unconstitutional. So that's one. And two, that the right to carry a handgun in public is guaranteed by the Second Amendment. So CNN has already complained. They've already been out there, of course, weeping that the decision has, quote, put gun control laws in jeopardy nationwide. And they followed that up. They noted uh, in some of their articles and commentary about it that in the three months since the 6-3 decision in Bruin, scores of new lawsuits have been filed against gun restrictions at the federal, state, and local levels. All true. Since the June ruling, federal judges in at least a half dozen different cases have already cited the Bruin decision to rule against gun restrictions that have included local assault weapons bans, prohibitions on the manufacture of homemade firearms, and bans on older teenagers publicly carrying handguns. CNN also noted a case in Delaware in which a federal district judge declared Delaware's ban on, quote, ghost guns. Those are those are guns that are made at home without serial numbers. They said that these ghost guns, uh, it, that the, the that the ban in Delaware on ghost guns is not valid under the high court's ruling. CNN also reported how an assault weapons bans, uh, ban inflicted on Coloradans in two local jurisdictions were placed on hold. So assault weapons bans in Colorado, two different jurisdictions, both of those were placed on hold, and Texas's public carry ban on individuals aged 18 to 20 was struck down as well. These are only a few recent cases that have begun to restore the Second Amendment to its rightful place. The reality is that these are only a few recent cases that have begun to restore the Second Amendment to its rightful place. Here's here's just another partial list per, as provided by Adelman of Second Amendment victories scored since Bruin. To avoid going to trial over its ban preventing concealed carry licensees from carrying more than 20 rounds of ammunition, the chief of Washington, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department repealed the ban in September. The Supreme Court, following its Bruin precedent, tossed Massachusetts' lifetime ban on anyone convicted of a nonviolent misdemeanor involving the possession or use of a firearm from ever being able to purchase a firearm in the future. So that was totally tossed out. And then the attorneys general of New Jersey, California, and Hawaii concluded that, based on Bruin, a citizen no longer must show a justifiable need to carry a firearm. And see, that's been one of the big arguments, especially with regarding New York, which is that people had to basically prove that they needed to have a firearm. And it was Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, who said, why is the Second Amendment any different than any of the others. We don't, nobody has to prove that they need the right to free speech or that they need the right to freedom of religion. 
and it shouldn't be necessary for the Second Amendment either. And that's been one one of the baseline statements that he made regarding the Second Amendment. And that's why you're seeing some of these, especially as I just mentioned, the New Jersey, California, and Hawaii, that they've already said that those things, yep, they're falling in because of Bruin. Those things got to go. This needing, a citizen needing to show justifiable need, nope, can't do it. So for those who think these lawsuits are, and then I think most of us would say we know that they're they're necessary, but most of us have no idea how many restrictive gun laws there are, because most of us think that there are very few restrictive gun laws, especially when we hear other folks from other countries constantly deriding the United States and talking about when they come here, it's just like everybody's got one on their hip, that kind of thing, which is bogus if you pay attention. But Second Amendment scholar and attorney Dave Workman estimates that there are some 20,000 to 25,000 restrictive gun laws in the United States. This is a constitutional right that we have, and there are 20,000 to 25,000 restrictive gun laws on a right that shouldn't have any restrictions to it at all. There's a lot of work to be done, but it looks like the tide is turning in favor of the Second Amendment. All right, those are the, all the updates I have for you this week. Remember, if the Ask Me Anything segment to the show is something that you're interested in, yes, it will make my weekly podcast longer, or it would mean that we create an additional podcast for the week, uh, something like that. If that's something that you're interested in, please remember to email my producer uh, at Bob bob at bobsloan.com and it's his email is in the description of the podcast, so you can just... Click on the podcast for today. The description will pop up wherever you listen to it. And his email and how to spell it and all that is right there. And you can just probably click on it and it'll pull up your email and and take you right to it. But if not, you can just copy and paste it and just email him and let him know if that's something that you're interested in and if you have any questions. And that way we can move forward with that if there's enough interest in it. We've gotten some feedback this week indicating that there are some listeners who are interested in that. So we'd like to hear from some more. And uh, I guess we'll see how it goes on if it's going to make this podcast too long uh, each week or not. And you guys can let us know that as well if you just like a longer weekly podcast or, hey, yeah, do this as something additional each week. That would be fun. So let us know. Hope you have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com.